0: Rewind to 2015, a major announcement at the United Nations, an ocean sanctuary around the Kermadec Islands. This is an area twice the size of our landmass and 50 times the size of our largest national park. It is truly a special place and we want to keep it that way. Celebrated around the globe. Imagine an area the size of France. Now imagine that area in the ocean off the coast of New Zealand. That's how big the country's new ocean sanctuary will be. But at home, it was already causing problems. John Key, you know, was quick to make the big announcement over
1: there in New York. There was only a one phone call to to Tuohukai Moana a few hours prior saying, oh,
0: we're gonna be making this announcement. With the sanctuary overriding Maori fishing rights. The Crown has never asked Maori whether we consent to these rights being extinguished and we object to being treated so disrespectfully. The government has spent years trying to negotiate a compromise, but... Iwi leaders have rejected the government's latest proposal to establish the Kermadec Ocean Sanctuary. More than 40 iwi organisations have voted overwhelmingly to reject the plan, saying an indigenous-led approach is the only way forward. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, where to next for the Kermadec Ocean Sanctuary? Is a solution that better protects the marine environment while meeting obligations under Te Tiriti o Waitangi possible? Or, almost a decade after it was announced, is it dead in the water? Andrea Vance is a senior journalist with Stuff and has been covering the issue for over a decade.
1: Kermadec is a really interesting place because it's so far from New Zealand, well over a thousand kilometres from mainland New Zealand, and most New Zealanders will never ever get the chance to go there. It is incredibly special because it is a biodiversity hotspot. It's a volcanic island chain, so it's got a lot of special minerals, very clear uh, water, uh, and it's just a very healthy place to sustain in populations of marine creatures, marine mammals, fish. And it's at a very important spot because it's on the migratory path or of a lot of creatures. So a lot of whales and dolphins and fish kind of spend their time there. So hugely, hugely important um, for the world and New Zealand's biodiversity.
0: Well, what's the significance of the area to New Zealand itself? I mean, it's so far away.
1: This is a really interesting aspect of this whole debate because it is very, very far away. And New Zealand's EEZ is enormous. We're one of, we have one of the largest economic exclusive zones. That's our waters out to 200 nautical miles off the shore. So when the United Nations is drawing up watery borders, um, we were lucky that we got the Kermit X. It is very far away. So it's kind of by sheer luck that it is ours to protect. It doesn't actually belong to us. It's not actually our property. And this is one of the big issues in the debate at the moment. We have the responsibility to protect it. We also have the responsibility for the right to fish it. But that isn't ours in perpetuity.
0: Bringing all this together, there's been an idea of a marine sanctuary in this area. How long has that idea been around for?
1: Gosh, Tom, as long as I've been in New Zealand. (laughs) There's been lots and lots of calls over the last 10, 15, 20 years to create a sanctuary. But basically what happened in 2015 was that John Key, the then Prime Minister, went to the UN General Assembly. There was a big focus on ocean protection around that time. The Obama administration and John Kerry, Secretary of State, were very interested in ocean protection and ocean policy.
0: Last year, I asked for your help in protecting our oceans. And I encourage leaders around the world to take action. Together, we are making progress.
1: So this was a great announcement for John Key to make. It got a lot of very admiring international headlines. However, back home, less excitement because Iwi, they hadn't been consulted on this. And so they were very angry. It's an affront to the Tino-Rangatiratanga of Māori that internationally funded NGOs can come To dictate to our government the creation of sanctuaries, which
0: might be good all in in, in purpose, but they are overriding Maori rights.
1: This created a huge row back home, to the the surprise of many, because, you know, you think an ocean sanctuary is a great thing.
0: Why were Maori so upset by the announcement?
2: The reason it took Maori by surprise in particular was that there hadn't really been any... Consultation with Maori about this.
0: This is Carwin Jones, Pukenga mātua of Maori Laws and Philosophy at Te Auananga or Raukawa, and an adjunct professor at Victoria University.
2: Particularly with uh, Te Ohu who have responsibilities around developing and uh, really protecting Maori interests in, in fisheries.
0: Why was it so bad that national kind of ran over this iwi consultation?
2: because, of course, the 1992 uh, Sea Lords deal, the the commercial fishery settlement, um, had been agreed between Maori representatives and the Crown as a national settlement of Maori commercial fishing rights. This proposal was going to cut across those rights and, in in fact, remove some of those rights uh, and so was, to some extent, undermining that settlement that had been agreed to.
0: The 1992 Sea Lord deal was one of the first major treaty of Waitangi settlements, and it gave Māori a 50% stake in the Sea Lord Fishing Company. It also protected Māori fishing rights and interests in perpetuity.
2: One of the things that we see a lot in the treaty settlement process in general is the importance of crown remembering the obligations that it signs up to part of the reason why we have uh, working through a historical treaty settlement process in the first place is because the crown has not remembered or implemented the obligations that it signed up to and so with these modern treaty settlements beginning really with the the sea lord's deal that was the first of the the kind of modern treaty settlements it's really important that the crown sticks to those obligations and if it wants to change The rights that are protected there, then it must engage with Māori on those.
0: Let's go right back to basics. Where does that duty to consult come from?
2: So it's it's now a pretty well-established kind of legal duty arising from what we talk about as the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi often people refer back to the the 1987 Court of Appeal case the New Zealand Maori Council and Attorney General which related to the process for the sale of state-owned enterprises and that legislation had a requirement that the Crown was not able to do anything inconsistent with the principles of the treaty. And in that case, uh, the Court of Appeal identified as being key treaty principles, uh, principles of partnership and active protection, um, as well as redress. But in that, within that principle of partnership is kind of fundamental ideas that the treaty partners ought to relate to each other uh, reasonably and with utmost good faith. And part of that is to engage in consultation where Māori interests are to be affected.
0: So after the Kumadek Sanctuary was announced, what action did Māori take? Here's Andrea Vance again.
1: The Maori Fisheries Trust, a commission that represents the rights and interests of Iwi in this space, they launched legal action because it felt that it's overturned the rights that are enshrined in this deal. The Maori party agreed with them, and at the time they were in a support agreement with the then national government, and they threatened to walk away from that agreement and basically bring down the government over this issue. The government can implement a piece of legislation that turns over uh, a treaty settlement. They can do it here. They could literally do it with any settlement, and it would put all other settlements at risk. So that kicked off basically a huge rye over this, and, and put the proposal on ice until 2017, when. Labour obviously ascended to par with the support of the Greens and New Zealand First. And New Zealand First were very opposed to the Kermadec Sanctuary. They didn't want to support it. The government then decided that it would quietly, behind the scenes, negotiate with Te Oho Moana, the Fisheries Trust, um, and to a lesser extent Whenua which is Natikuri. They were being done by David Parker and Calvin Davis. It's been really difficult to find out what's been going on. These negotiations and talks were shrouded pretty much in secrecy. But last year they got very, very close to securing agreement. It looked like there was gonna be an announcement to coincide in June with World Oceans Day. And that would have been Jacinda Ardern making that announcement. And that again would have been in a world stage context. You know, It would have been in a big international announcement and would have looked great for New Zealand. What seems to have happened is that the government had managed to get
0: Tokum over the line. Tokum is to Ohu kai Moana,
1: Or to the point where they were going to hold a special meeting for their members to agree or reject this. But the government hadn't properly, as I understand it, been talking to Nati Kuri as Mana Fenua, and they were unhappy with that. And so the whole deal, as I understand it, didn't go forward so fast forward and we're another year on and what happened was the government made a number of concessions wrote a supplementary order paper um, that would amend the current legislation that's sitting before parliament and that went to Tokam. Tokam had a special meeting this week in Wellington and to the surprise of a lot of people rejected the proposal The government appears to have been blindsided by Iwi leaders' decision to reject its latest proposal to establish a Kermadec Ocean Sanctuary.
0: So what was this proposal? What was on the table? It's just been voted down, as you said. The
1: government thought it would get it over the line because it basically said that it would insert provisions into the legislation that would allow for compensation. So it would allow Iwi who felt like their rights and interests should be met, it should be compensated for it. the legislation would allow that to happen. The previous piece of legislation, which was introduced by a national, didn't do that. So that was quite a significant um concession. It opened the door up to compensation. It would have been it wouldn't have been a huge amount of money is the thing because because the region isn't really fished. It's very, very remote and lots of types of fishing can't be done up there. Um, so the EWE have said that it's it's not about compensation. At the moment, Takuma are saying that it's about the fact that they want to design the sanctuary and have it be iwi and Maori led.
2: The statements that I've heard from Te Kaimwana right from back when this issue first came about was actually the compensation wasn't the kind of sticking point for them. It wasn't what they were looking for particularly. It was more the concern around the government uh, asserting that it had a right to just make this decision unilaterally without engaging in proper consultation. As I say, it's a kind of action which has led to the need for the settlements of historical claims in the first place, the government not properly engaging with Māori, overriding Māori interests unilaterally, and not taking the time to remember its obligations that it signed up to and you know this 1992 in um, the scheme of things is not really very long ago to, to remember oh yes actually we agreed that to settle these commercial fishing claims um, we were going to provide these rights and recognize these rights to then undermine those without any real discussion and consultation As in principle a really concerning thing. No amount of, of money can make up for the loss of Tino Tiratanga, or the erosion of Tino Tiratanga that uh, various activities of government have over the years have um, had an effect on in that way. Now, I think in just about all the historical treaty settlements, we would much prefer to, for example, have, have their land returned rather than um, any amount of money for that.
0: Co-governance as well. In this particular situation, Te Ohokamawana have said that the co-governance that the government's proposing isn't enough.
2: Yeah, that seems to be the case. And again, if I'm interpreting what Teoka are is saying correctly, the issue seems to be, you know, the government is talking about, well, we'll set up the framework for how things are going to work and you can have some seats um, or some membership of this group. And what Teoka Kaimawana is saying, no, we don't want to participate in your process. We don't think your process is going to be effective either at dealing with the environmental issues or uh, helping the commercial fishing settlement to remain viable and sustainable. And so what they're saying is, what Te Hukai want to say, we think we can provide a different way of doing things. We want to be able to lead design and the structure of that process and create a different way of thinking about co-governance than simply We'll decide the process and you fit in with that.
0: Because, yeah, this is what the leaders of Te Ohu Kamoana have been talking about, having an iwi-led Māori process.
2: It would start with a blank piece of paper rather than a, what we were received in 2015. That would be the first part. We would be using tikanga and kawa to be able to guide
0: the, the principles. What do you think that could look like?
2: Look, I I, I don't know exactly what Te Kaimwana is thinking about or what they have in mind, but, you know, the kinds of things that um, you would expect in a tikanga-driven process would be to uh, have kind of centrally to think about uh, the relationships that are involved. We might talk about whanungatanga or, or, or even whakapapa in that context and have an emphasis on thinking about what the relationships are, rather than, than necessarily the kind of particular decision-making split might be. That it, Again, this kind of shift from thinking about numbers to thinking about relationships there. You'd expect that they would be thinking about concepts like mana, and how to recognise the manner and authority of the different parties that are involved. So that might be, what's the kind of authority that's appropriate for Te to exercise? What might be appropriate? In relation to those iwi who have particular mana whenua interests, what role is appropriate for government in that space? You'd want to hope that there would be a consideration of tanga in terms of thinking about environmental impacts and, and a focus on ensuring there's kind of sustainability of the resource and connecting with the kind of objectives of the proposed ocean sanctuary in terms of you know the environmental objectives that are at, at stake there.
0: Well, just give me an example of what. Yeah, using these relationships in this matter could mean in practice?
2: Well, for example, what we see in relation to some of the settlements like the Whanganui River Settlement, you've got a whole range of different entities which are both set up by the, the settlement and entities which are contributing into those. So, for example, you've got a recognition that that the river has its own legal personality, but so to speak, on behalf of the river, there's two people who are appointed to one appointed by you, one appointed by the Crown to speak and be the voice for the river. But then you've got an advisory group that sits around them, you've got a group which is responsible for developing uh, the strategy. And each of these have a slightly different makeup. So one is very iwi focused, um, another has iwi participation, local government participation, and, and broader participation in terms of. The different kinds of interests forest and bird fish game those kinds of entities as well but all of them are, are sitting within a framework which has these a statement of key values and principles about what's going to guide their decision making and actions in relation to the river then you know the very famous one is quote you know I'm the river and the river is me and so that's from that statement of principle if you like then gets drawn out well, what does that mean in terms of how we might interact with the river and so it then changes your framework in terms of if you are thinking about the river being bound up in your own identity and person that changes the way you go about making decisions so if you're thinking about in the context of Te Oka kaimuana, you know, they already have a, a kind of structure in place for how their kind of clusters of iwi organisations contribute to their governance and decision making. And so presumably they'll be drawing on, on those, but also as I say thinking about well actually are there other particular interests in accordance with Te Māori that ought to have a particular say in this. So, for example, what's the role of, of those iwi that exercise particular mana whenua or, or mana moana, perhaps in this case, rights? and obligations. And, and again, I think the other part of it, which I would hope is forming part of a, a tikanga-based approach is that there's an understanding that rights and obligations always go together in Te ao Māori in a tikanga context. So if you're thinking about, well, who has the authority to, or particular authority to speak in relation to this area of the moana, it's also a question of well they have that authority because there are particular obligations to discharge their particular obligations of being a kaitiaki that need to be discharged there and that's the purpose of those rights
0: is this a way that environmental protection and treaty obligations can exist in harmony together
2: there's no reason why why they can't and as in fact if you're adopting a tikanga Māori approach, then at the heart of tikanga is also thinking about not only our relationships between people, but our relationships uh, between people in the natural world. And so, kaitiakitanga is is a very significant part of that. Why we are seeing this tension arise in this context? Clearly, there are commercial interests at play. The the tension has arisen because. The government has failed to discharge its treaty obligations in terms of the recognised rights which are set out in the settlement. And, you know, I think this is a real failure of, of the government in terms of maintaining environmental protections here.
0: Where to next? Here's Andrea Vance.
1: The government can either choose to go ahead and push through the legislation, even though it doesn't have the support of Tocum, which means that it will probably end up in court, or it can drop the proposal. The problem with that then is it sends a signal that marine protection, any form of marine protection, uh, any ocean sanctuaries or marine reserves Uh, Maori fishing interests have a right of veto. So they basically can say whether they go ahead or not. It kind of sets that precedent or sends that signal. And that's really of concern to environmental groups and some scientists because there has been no marine protection in New Zealand for well over a decade because of these issues.
0: If it doesn't go ahead, how do you think that will impact New Zealand's environmental reputation?
1: New Zealand likes to think that it has a great reputation um, for environmental protection. In the ocean space, that's just not true. There's a real focus on ocean protection at the moment. Um, You would have seen a couple of months ago, there was an enormous UN treaty signed about protection of waters on the high seas, so those are the international waters that no one um, controls. The
2: high seas treaty will allow marine protected areas or MPAs to be set up in international waters.
1: That was a massive deal that took years and years to negotiate and, and it was you know, a big cause for celebration when it was done. And the reason that people are looking at ocean protection is it's one of the ways that we protect ourselves from climate change. The ocean is really important for climate resilience. And so it's one of our tools kind of in that, in that fight against global warming and climate change. There's also an economic argument, you know, you'll hear people talking about the blue economy and how we can grow the economy from the ocean. And that doesn't necessarily just involve extraction of resources like seabed mining and fishing. There are other ways of doing that. All eyes are kind of on this space at the moment. You know, people are really really intensely focused on it. In terms of if we don't meet those international obligations, well, it's it's not like we're going to get fined or put in jail or anything like that. (laughs) It's a dent to our international reputation, but I suppose there are no practical consequences of it other than, you know, we're all part of this great big fight against climate change
2: do you think there will one day now be a kubadix sanctuary or is it dead in the water? If you take take the statements from Te One at, at face value, you know, they have talked about wanting to provide a Māori-led solution to this. Um, I don't know whether that incorporates a, an ocean sanctuary around the kubadix or not. I wouldn't rule it out and um, I would hope that there's scope for more of those kind of environmental protections because I think we need them, but they need to be undertaken in a way which... Uh, effective and recognise rights that people hold
0: That's it for today I'm Tom Kitchen The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison Thanks to Andrew Vance and Carwin Jones Mā te wa.